Good morning. Are any of you, like I am, about ready for fall? <laughs> when I was much younger, I was a, a summer person. When I was much younger, I was stupid. <laughs> I'm done with the heat. <laughs> Lord, turn it down. <laughs> what a pleasure to have you all here today. What a pleasure it is to be here today, to come before you in the preaching of God's Word. Uh, so glad that we're able to do this in a nation where we have the freedom to do this, free from persecution. That may not always be the case, but it is the case today. So we rejoice in that, don't we? Uh, a couple of things today. Um, one, I want to remind you, if you intend to uh, be at the introduction to Veritas meeting uh, next Sunday following service, uh, as Tom mentioned, we would like and we do ask uh, that you would let us know that you would RSVP no later than today. Uh, in your bulletin is a web address and a phone number if you need child care uh, that you can let us know that you're going to be there. We, we really want you to be. If you'd like to know more about Veritas, if you'd like to know more about its leadership and why we believe what we believe, uh, then, then please come. Uh, if you're already a member, if you're a long-time member, that's okay. Come anyway. Uh, I believe there's food. We like food. Uh, but it gives the members as well an opportunity to, to know and meet uh, those who are interested in perhaps becoming members themselves. Or maybe they just want to get to know us and a little bit more about us. Uh, that's a good time for us to gather together and share our love for Christ and welcome them into the family of Veritas if they're so inclined. So again, that's next Sunday following service. Um, food will be provided. Child care will be provided as needed. Uh, and so you're invited to that. Uh, the other thing is Tom read our text. I'm going to read it for you once again from that uh, extra spiritual version. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I had to shake the giggles coming up here. <laughs> I, I may not be past them yet, so <laughs> I like laughing, and, and God gives us the gift of laughter, so we want to enjoy that, but I'm going to try to restrain it as I preach. In the ESV, this version reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's not the text I'm going to preach. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Actually, I, I tried to get a hold of uh, the folks that do the printing of the bulletin um, because the text I'm going to preach from, and it's the only text that will be coming from this version. Everything else I read will be from the ESV. But my sermon text is going to come from the New American Standard Bible, and I, and I have a, a, a real reason for doing that. Uh, I will get to uh, as we go through the sermon itself. But I just wanted to give you a heads up that when I begin reading the sermon text, Romans 8.28, I'm not going to ask you to follow along, if you can, if you have the NAS, NASB, uh, but the ESV is going to be perhaps a little confusing for you. 
So typically we ask you to follow along as we preach. Uh, I won't be doing that today. Uh, just, just because I don't want to confuse you with the exact uh, language uh, differences. So, from Romans 8.28, in the New American Standard, this is the way the text reads. And you may note the distinction. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of God. Now, I mentioned last week that I am provisionally employed by the state of California. Uh, what I didn't mention uh, is that I was also recently interviewing for and ultimately selected to uh, a promotional AGPA position. Now, an AGPA is an associate governmental plan, uh, excuse me, uh, an associative governmental Project analyst. What that means, no one knows. <laughs> but it sounds really highfalutin, and it makes my mama happy. <laughs> so it's a position I've been seeking for the past eight years. And the reason, or at least one reason, uh, that it took so long is that our division, the division that I work for, is only allowed five AGPA positions. <clears throat> and until very recently, all of those positions were filled by others. As well, I didn't really look outside of my division. I, I could have been more active in my search for the position, but I didn't want to be. I really like where I work. It's a, we call it a soft benefit. Uh, in any promotion, if you're in a place where you're miserable, it, what's it worth? And I'm really happy to be where God has placed me with the people that I'm working with. I really like them. And one of those people, a particular person that I really, really like, is named Michael. Now, Michael is more than just a coworker. He's a very dear friend of mine, and he's as well a brother in the Lord. Michael is one of our division's human resource analysts. Michael was also one of the people on the interview panel. An enthusiastic in advocating his assuredness that I was going to get this position. Michael was so personally confident of that that he promised me the position. The problem is, Michael wasn't the only one on the panel. And out of the three that were, Michael had the least authority of them all. As an HR analyst, Michael's main job, although he did participate in the interview, his, his main function, his primary duty, was to just make sure that the interview followed state protocol. Now, Michael loves me, and even in appreciating his desiring good things for me, and I do, and I did, I also knew he didn't have the authority to make that promise that he was making me. I appreciated it, but I couldn't really hang on to it. That's not the case 
with the promise before us today. This isn't Paul's opinion. It's not Paul wishing us well. It's not Paul's optimistic hope for us. This is Paul delivering to us a powerful promise that was first delivered to him by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This promise comes to us as the authoritative word of God. That's a lot different than Michael's promise to me. In fact, in light of the the suffering, the decay, and the corruption of creation and humanity that we saw portrayed in preceding portions of Romans 8, this promise could arguably be viewed as the greatest promise for Christians in all of Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this promise that it is one of the most remarkable statements that the Apostle Paul ever made and one of the most comforting statements in the whole range of Scripture. Before we look at that promise, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, we come before you today filled with a need. A need to get beyond our human doubts, our human fears, and our human insecurities, Lord. We need and come before you asking for increased faith in your word. A genuine submittal to it as our authority. And a confidence in it as our truth. Lord God, would you do that for us today? Would you reveal yourself, your power, and your promise through the preaching of your word this very day. Would you turn each of these hearts now to your word in the name of Christ, amen. God's glorious promise, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me say before I really dig into this that I am frustrated in being unable to present you all of the depth of truth that is found within this text. Now, I've said that before, but on no other occasion has it been more true than it is today? It would take literally a multitude of sermons to fully mine, if that were even possible, the wealth within these words. I expressed that truth to my bride just yesterday in this way. I said, there's so much meat here that I'll never get to the bone." That's true. There is so much meat here that I, it would be impossible with our limitation of time, even if our time went into the introduction of Veritas next week. I'm willing <laughs> to preach the whole truth here. 
So with that disclaimer made, let's begin our study of Romans 8.28, looking at the presence of God. Excuse me. Let me as well say up front that this promise, which Martin Lloyd-Jones calls remarkable and comforting, if it is not authored by and under the authority of God, it is the most ridiculous thing that anyone has ever said. And even if we receive it as God's word, as we should and must, in light of its incredible claim, we may still miss the central theme of the promise. To see the promise in its right context, we need to see it as Paul intended that we see it. I see its connections to Scripture in three ways. It's a link back to verses 18 and 25, the the suffering, the corruption, the destruction, the decay of sin that we saw there. I see it as a hub to the various works of the Holy Spirit that we saw throughout chapter 8. And I see it particularly as a bridge between Romans 8.1 and 8.31.39. In Romans 8.1, Paul said, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This promise links directly to that because ultimately this promise points to God's work in guarding the salvation of his saints. The perseverance or preservation of the saints is a term used in reference to the believer's eternal security. It's the P in TULIP, the acronym for the five points of Calvinism. You may have heard it stated as the once saved, always saved. The biblical teaching being that those who are born anew in Christ will continue in Christ forever. That God will, through the ever-present and omnipotent power and grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit, hold and preserve those whom He has called to be saints. It's that assuredness of the believer's salvation we find promised in this verse where God's provision and protection is proclaimed with certainty, regardless of our circumstance. It's the same security promised in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, where believers are assured of their gospel inheritance with the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That reads, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And again in Philippians 1.16, or excuse me, 1.6, it is written, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews 6.18 tells us, and the fullness of Scripture shows us, that God cannot lie, we as believers can be eternally confident that we are eternally secure because God is eternally faithful. 
So with the promise made certain by God as its author, let's look at the promise itself in order to better understand it and to take hold of the comfort and the courage that this promise affords us. In doing that, we're going to look at five components of this amazing promise. The presence of the promise. The power of the promise. The principle of the promise. The people of the promise. And lastly, the purpose of the promise. Let me say those again briefly. The presence, the power, the principle, the people, and the purpose of the promise of God. The presence of the promise. And we know. The first words in that text, and we know. Contrary to last week's sermon when I said I wish that Paul had begun his text with something other than likewise, that being for exegetical laziness on my part and the difficulties in exegesis it presented, this week the absolute opposite is true. I am so glad, so blessed that Paul opens this promise with the words, we know. Had he instead said, we hope, we think, we pray, or even that we believe, we'd have words here having no more authority than Michael's promise did for me. We'd only have Paul's wishing us well. But Paul said, and we know. But in reading that, we're faced with a very, very important question. And it's a question that each of us must ask and answer of ourselves. Do I really know this? Is this true for me? The sad reality is that many Christians are still tied to an unbiblical belief that they've learned in churches, churches that still teach this today, unfortunately, that there is a certainty that they are responsible for partnering with God in their salvation and the assurance of it through righteous living. I was taught that, and I once believed that too. I still have dear friends that believe that. And though I've tried to persuade them from Scripture, they can't get past the traditions of men to trust in God's Word. One dear friend has explained it to me that when I sin, when he sins, when you sin, you must immediately confess your sins, lest you die in them. 
Should you die in anger against your spouse, you will go to hell because you did not confess and repent of that sin. What an impotent gospel. What an impotent Jesus. That's not the gospel of the scriptures. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. My God is able to keep me, to keep you securely in His good and loving grace through the shed blood of Christ. Now listen, I'm not saying that believers aren't to strive for righteous living. We are. Verses such as 2 Timothy 2.22 command us to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's an edict of the Lord. But as Titus 3.5 also tells us, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Though it's right for us to do so, our best efforts to live godly lives provide neither the source nor the security of our salvation. But until we genuinely understand, accept, and even embrace that truth, that truth that salvation comes only through the work of God and is likewise kept for us through the work of God, we can never personally really know the presence of this promise in our life. Our lack of understanding doesn't in any way nullify God's ability to keep the promise, but it does nullify our ability to rest in the promise and our ability to joyfully praise God for the promise. A joy that we can know even in our deepest times of sorrow, and in the midst of our most painful suffering. So in an effort to help us understand the fullness of this promise and why we can know it and trust it and look to it for our joy in every circumstance, let's look at the power of the promise. And we know that God causes. There they are. There are the words God causes, and those are the words that, is the, that were the sole reason I decided to use the NS, NASB translation of the Bible. Right there, stated in plain and simple English, is Paul's declaration of the limitless and unfathomable power lying behind and beneath this incredible promise. Now that doesn't mean that that same truth is in any way not implied or not taught in any of our other accepted versions of the Bible. It is. 
but it's implicit there. And I wanted it to be heard explicitly. I wanted to speak those words to you that it is God that causes lest there be any doubt that these are some kind of impersonable, cosmic force, that the rocks and the trees are conspiring for you. Creation is suffering as you are. It is God who is conspiring for our good in all things. So we see with these words that Paul, and we see with Paul's spiritual gifted clarity that the reason we are able to trust this promise, the reason this promise can be truly known is because it is God himself, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, who is the active and effectual cause of all things working together for good. Just as God sovereignly chose us before the foundation of the world, appointing us to salvation, to be conformed to the image of His Son, Christ Jesus, He now works both in us and on our behalf for our ongoing salvation and preservation as saints through the direct, personal, and gracious work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's only when and if we understand that our triune God is the root source and perpetual cause, that He is the person who brings all things together for good for those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose, that we can truly know the presence of the promise. To say it another way, we can't truly know the presence of the promise until we truly recognize that it is God who actively is empowering the promise. So in order to gain a personally known presence of the promise and the blessings and the comfort it affords us, especially in difficult circumstance, let's now look at what it is that God's power does. Let's look at the core principle of the promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's the crazy part of that statement, isn't it? And so we need to ask, what does Paul mean when he uses those words, all things? Now, I have to tell you that John Calvin, who we should always be slow to argue with, John Calvin takes all things to mean only those trials and tribulations we found in the preceding verses. I was surprised by that. Because I don't see a simple reading of the text justifying such a limitation. The Greek word used here is panta. 
And the literal meaning of ponta is all, the whole, every kind of. That's my literal meaning of all too. If I say all of you come to my house after church, I better have a big house. And I certainly can't greet one of you and say, well, I didn't mean you. All, in English, and in this case, in the Greek, means all. And so in reviewing as many commentators as my references allowed, I was, I was rather reassured, unlike last week when everybody was going in different directions, I was reassured finally that all of them, with that singular exception of Calvin, agreed that all things mean all things. Because I didn't know what else all could mean. So in considering all things, I don't think it's necessary that we spend a great deal of our limited time working through how outwardly good things may be worked together by God for our good. James 1.17 tells us that every good and every perfect gift is from above. So we don't need to wonder if God works the gifts he gives together for our good. His gifts are already good, and his gifts are already perfect. No assembly required. As well, when we're enjoying steady work, when our families are doing well, when sickness and death are absent from our world, when we can already see things around us working for our good, it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to say and it's pretty easy to, to know that all things work together for good because everything in our world is good. Our difficulty and perhaps even our unbelief is seen when we consider how God can take those circumstances and those conditions that seem so clearly opposed to our good, so unfavorable to our happiness, so detrimental to our peace, our joy and security, and work them together for our good. Our faith falters when it collides with an inability to reconcile how God can bring about good from what we can only see as destruction, discouragement, despair, and disappointment. And yet, as crazy as it sounds, that's exactly what Paul says God does. He works all things together for our good. Now let me be honest with you, to, to think that I could name every good that might be worked by God from every trial and tribulation that we might experience would be impossible. It would be impossible today 
And especially considering that as we look at the world around us, a world that seems to more and more be filled with hate and violence, locally, across the nation, even abroad, evil seems to be growing exponentially. So to name all of the evils that God can work for our good would be futile. I could never name them all because they seem to be increasing. So I think that MacArthur's categorization of the three evils that God uses to bring about good in the lives of his people, suffering, temptation, and sin might be helpful here. Now where MacArthur provides several pages of detail on each, my conclusions are going to be, you'll appreciate this, summarized. God uses the evil of suffering as a means of bringing good to his people. Now, suffering may come upon us in a myriad of ways and for a number of reasons. We've all known suffering in one way and to one degree or another. None of us have invited suffering. None of us have welcomed suffering all of us are eager for the suffering in our life to depart. Suffering is unpleasant. Suffering is painful. Suffering is hurtful by its very nature. But suffering may arrive as the righteous suffering of Christian persecution providing witness of our unwavering hope in Christ. And that is a good thing. It may come as the simple suffering of pain and hardship that's so common to all of mankind. And as we faithfully endure it and demonstrate a distinction from the world with our trust and dependency and our good and loving God that they may see the love of Christ towards us in that, that's a good thing. Suffering may come for the purpose of our sanctification, humbling us in our weakness, pressing us back to the foot of the cross and driving us to prayer at the throne of grace, mercy, and glory. And that's a good thing. Suffering may come as chastising discipline, mercifully administered to drive us back to Christ and away from sinful rebellion and idolatry. And that's a good thing. Suffering also makes us aware, awakening us to sin's presence and effect. And in the anguish of our suffering, our hatred of sin is strengthened. And that is a good thing. As well, God may work our good through direct or indirect suffering. Indirect suffering is the work he did in Acts 5.11 when great fear came upon the whole church of Corinth and upon all who heard of these things after God struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. 
as well as suffering, God uses the evil of temptation as a means of bringing good to his people. Temptation is the siren song of Satan and our own flesh, sung to lure us away from God and into spiritual destruction. And like suffering, it has no inherent good in it. One means God uses in working temptations for our good is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now let's be careful that we hear that rightly. This verse isn't calling us to tough it out with white-knuckled resistance as we exercise marathon efforts to hold our ground against the deceit of the devil or the lusts of the flesh. We've all learned, haven't we, from our own efforts and our failed experiences that it's foolish to trust against resistance in our strength alone? What this verse says is, is that when we're tempted, and we will often be tempted, we're to look to God as the avenue of escape. Noah didn't endure the the judgment deluge by swimming well. But Noah grew in his faith when he trusted his escape to the means provided by God. When we're tempted, don't swim well. Run to God. When temptation causes us to fall to our knees and serves as a fuel igniting our hearts in fervent prayer, we flee to the Lord God for His strength and His protection. And in doing so, God uses the evil of temptation to demonstrate His love, increasing our faith and our dependency in Him. And that's a good thing. Along with suffering and temptation, God uses the evil of sin itself as a means of bringing good to His people. Theologically, sin is the direct antecedent of good. It's the direct opposite of good. And if suffering and temptation are evil, and they are, then sin, the root of all suffering and temptation, must be the worst of all evils. Though the Bible doesn't say that God hates suffering, and the Bible doesn't say that God hates temptation, passages such as Psalm 5, 4 through 6 do tell us that God hates sin. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. 
It also needs to be stated clearly that God does not cause our sin. Rather, God is able to use sin, bringing about good on behalf of believers in these ways. He may give us wisdom in seeing a particular sin in others, that we might hate that sin for the damage and destruction it brings. prompting us to reveal it to them and prompting our prayers for the confession and repentance and salvation of them. And that's a good thing. But we need wisdom in doing this, lest we be guilty self-righteous judgment. We don't want to be the Pharisee thanking God that He didn't make us like them. We have sin enough of our own. Nor do we want to be the subject of Romans 2, 1 through 3 where it reads, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So when we see sin in the lives of others, we should, we must, in loving, godly kindness, tell them of the sin we see. But let's make sure that we don't see that sin reflecting out of our lives too. And let's see that we don't, when we approach them over it, do so in a condemning, self-righteous, better-than-thou attitude. But that we do so with love and mercy and grace as God has shown His mercy and love and grace to us in our sin. The Scriptures don't offer any distinction between the sins of a believer and the sins of an unbeliever. The sins of each are committed against God, and the sins of each justly deserve His righteous wrath. What is spoken of, though, and it's inclusive in the gospel, is the vast distinction and the ultimate consequence of sin. For the believer, the ultimate penalty of eternal suffering, though it's rightly due our every sin, past, present, and future, was paid in full with the shed blood of Christ. Through Christ, we are free from God's judgment and wrath, that eternal condemnation that Romans 8.1 says we're free of. And so considering the great price paid by God's Son, it's easier to understand the promise of His preservation of the saints as a 
excuse me, as a foundational truth of Romans 8. But even as God in His grace preserves our salvation and guards our inheritance as His adopted children, we remain subject still to the immediate consequence of sin. And should our suffering received as a result of sin drive us from that sin and bring us contrite hearts of godly sorrow leading to repentance, that's a good thing. If our sin and its consequence drive us back to Christ, that's a good and welcome thing. It's a difficult thing to thank God for punishment due us in our sin. But it's a right thing. We should be thankful when God gives us consequence for our sin, presuming that that consequence has in fact driven us back to the seat of mercy. Of course, no example of God purposefully working evil for our good can compare with the sacrificial death of His own Son, Jesus. In that singular epic event, it was God's will in accord with His perfect and eternal plan to take the greatest act of evil ever devised by Satan, ever committed by the hand of man to bless us with His working it all together for our greatest good, our eternal salvation in Christ. And that's a good thing. That's the best thing. But now we must ask, because the words are here, to whom is this promise given? The text provides us two qualifications for identifying the people of the promise. The first, a human qualification, and the second, a divine qualification. According to this text, the people of the promise are, first, those who love God. This is the human qualification. We might call this the, the participant qualification. Because it is only those belonging to God that love God. The world, meaning all of those outside of Christ, remain hateful enemies of God. We see that said in Romans 1.30 and 5.10. And even of those denying that enmity with Christ, Jesus himself says in John 8.42, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. 
the rhetorical statement is, is clear and obvious. You're not of my Father. You don't love me. But a true lover of God demonstrates that love in ways that go beyond a mere profession of faith. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. But they do not love God. The lover of God loves in response to God's first loving them. 1 John 4, 7, 10, and 19. The lover of God delights in submitting to his rightful authority. Luke 6, 46 and John 14, 21. The lover of God longs for personal communion with God. Psalm 73, 25. The lover of God trusts in and looks to God for his provision and his protection. Psalm 31, 23. The lover of God is a defender of God's name and his honor. Psalm 69, 9. The lover of God loves what God loves and hates what God hates and loves God's word. All of Psalm 119. The lover of God loves God's people, the church. 1 John 3.14 and 4.20-21. The text says that the people of the promise are those who are called. And this is the divine qualification. This is what we might call the recipient qualification. Our love for God is an active love. Prompted, yes, by God first loving us, but returned to God in our hearts and our minds and rightly in all that we do in our lives. We're to love God with some of it? No. Scriptures say we're to love the Lord our God with all. There's that word of our hearts, our minds, our soul, and our strength. And that's what the true lover of God does. He loves God in response to God's first loving him. It's a love returned. And so just as our love for God must be initiated by his first loving us, so too our calling into the eternal family of God must originate with him as well. In Matthew twenty two fourteen, in saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus is speaking of that gospel call given to all men by which they are to believe in him. You've probably presented that same gospel open call to others. Presenting the gospel to them as you urge them to turn from their sin and turn to Christ from eternal death to eternal life, only to find yourself weeping over them as they denounce Christ and reject his love and the gift of his salvation? That's because the only people who will, 
the only people who are able to truly respond to the external call are those whom God the Holy Spirit has irresistibly and effectually called. That's the distinction in the term called. As it's used here with Paul saying that the only people promised God's preservation as saints must understandably first be saints. And that in order to be a saint, we must first be recipients of God's effectual call, wherein in the call we are gifted new life, hearts of faith, and an abiding love for Christ our Lord. Jesus is speaking of this same effectual calling as well in John 6, 65, when he says that no one can come to him unless it is granted him by the Father. There and elsewhere, Scripture makes clear that our calling, that our coming to Christ is the sole work of God alone. Not one of us apart from that calling, will choose Christ. Not one of us, apart from that calling, will hate our sin. We delight in our sin. The only thing that we do with our sin is try to figure out how not to get caught in it. But with the effectual call, it is exposed It is made known to us, and we know it is known by God. And in the effectual call, we find His mercy covering our sin. And in a love for Christ, we find a hatred of it. But as well in the knowledge that God has chosen us, we are humbled not made arrogant. It might seem to some that our saying we were chosen by God is bragging of our good and our worth. The exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. In light of Scripture's teaching and my knowledge of my sin, bringing forth the Christ's necessary sacrifice, I know that the only thing I deserve is eternal damnation and a place in hell. The only thing I deserve is everlasting torment and complete separation from the mercies of God. My sin has purchased the wages of death. And apart from God, that's where I would be. Apart from God, that's where each of you would be. And rightly and justly so. But because God chose us and loved us, we love and worship Him. 
and in the knowledge of His great love, goodness, and covenant promise, we can rest in the comfort of His promise to preserve us, to preserve His saints. As a Christian, that means me. And as a Christian, that means you. We can rest in the comforting truth that God holds us in an almighty hand. What can separate us? What can separate us from the love of God, His protection, and His provision? Absolutely nothing. I want to conclude with the purpose of the promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. As first mentioned, God's purpose in this wonderful promise is the believer's security in Christ. The assured preservation and perseverance of the saints. And in the verses that follow, verses 29 through 30, God's word expands on this thought, providing how that perseverance was begun in eternity past, with God's ordaining those who he would call, electing, adopting, those whom were predestined for his grace. Each of those deserves a sermon in itself. But in the midst of verse 29, Paul, by the illumination of the Spirit, reveals another divine purpose in God's working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God has predestined His children and now preserves them so that ultimately our ongoing sanctification will result in our being conformed to the image of His Son, bearing His likeness before all of creation, and in so doing bring great glory to God. For the true believer, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, even in the deepest throes of suffering, there is joy and gratitude. When I know that I'm being conformed to Christ through my suffering, there's great joy in that. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't mourn or weep. It doesn't mean that suffering isn't suffering. But it does mean that we can be sure our safe and good and faithful God is working all of it for our good. Now, we might not see it until we die, but we know our sovereign God is ceaselessly and purposely purchased, excuse me, at work for our good. But just as it was true in last week's preaching that no one may know the indwelling spirit lest they first know the ransoming Christ, So it is true with regard to this promise. 
it is, as declared by its own words, a promise held out and kept for by God only to those whom are His, those whom He loves, those whom He's called, those whom have been purchased with Christ's own blood. For all others, all others meaning those who are outside redeemed fellowship with Christ. The scriptures are clear that regardless of how well life may be going for you today, regardless of what promise life may have in your future, ultimately and eternally, all things will not work out for your good. Your suffering, your pain has yet to begin and will never end. I'm not one of those who likes to try to scare someone into salvation. I think that's a really incomplete means of trying to convince someone to to turn their life to Jesus. But it's no less a reality for those who don't. There's a promise for the believer of eternal security. And there's a promise for the unbeliever of eternal suffering. Scripture says... This is the day of salvation. Choose whom you will serve. So, if that's you, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I'd ask you to consider a different but no less wonderful promise. It's found in Romans 10, 9 through 11. And it reads this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So today, if you're hearing the voice of God's Spirit calling you, please don't resist, but rather heed his call this very day, confessing and repenting of your sin as you place your faith in the only good place for it in the loving arms of Christ for eternal salvation. Would you bow your heads with me, please, as I close us in prayer? Oh, glorious God. How undeserving are we of your favor. How unworthy are we of your blessings. 
how graciously we receive the gift of your Son, Jesus, and the gospel of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you purposed before time began to redeem us, to send your Son, Jesus, the Messiah, to ransom us from the rightful praise and the slavery to our sin. Lord God, would you take the words of this promise today and embed them in our hearts. Lord God, as we come up against the suffering that we know faces us, whether it's today or tomorrow, whether it's fleeting or lasting, would you help us to remember in the light and the face of all pain, all suffering, all destruction, all discord and dismay, that you are God and that you are working all things together for our good because we have been called and because we love God because you first loved us. Father, would you bless us now in the name of Jesus, the presence and the power of your promise. In Christ's holy name, amen.